Today's speaker is author Catherine Patterson, here to discuss her newest book, My Brigadista Year. Ms. Patterson has written over 30 books, including 16 novels for young people. She has won the Newbery Medal twice for Bridge to Terabithia and for Jacob Have I Loved. The Master Puppeteer and the Great Gilly Hopkins both won the National Book Award. For the body of her work, Ms. Patterson received the Hans Christian Andersen Award in 1998 and the Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award in 2006. From 2010 to 2011, she was the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. She was named a living legend by the Library of Congress in 2000. Ms. Patterson is a vice president of the National Children's Book and Literacy Alliance and a member of the Board of Trustees for Vermont College of Fine Arts. She is an honorary lifetime member of the International Board on Books for Young People and an Elida Cutts lifetime member of the United States Board on Books for Young People. Please join me in welcoming Katherine Patterson to the Boston Athenaeum. Well, thank you very much for coming on this beautiful afternoon. We drove past Boston Common. I thought, nobody is going to come this afternoon. They're all going to be on Boston Common where they ought to be when it's beautiful weather like this. But thank you. <clears throat> I'm <clears throat> going to talk almost exclusively for the next, I hope not too long, about my new book because that's what my publisher would really like for me to talk about, and this is my first chance to talk to an audience about it, so I'm practicing on you, and uh, we'll see how it goes, and you can give me uh, some suggestions afterwards as to what I should say or what I should leave out, okay? <clears throat> uh, my father lived in China for 18 years. But when, in 1980, I told him I was writing a novel set in China, he gave me an amused grin. Well, he said, they say if you're in China for a week, you can write a book. If you're there for a month, you can write an article. If you're there for a year, you might be able to write a pamphlet. But if you're there for 10 years, you can't say a word. Despite my father's wisdom, I went ahead and wrote a book set in China, Rebels of the Heavenly Kingdom, and I'm sorry to say he died before it was published, so I never got his review. I thought often, however, about this conversation these last couple of years, and I can sort of imagine that same twinkle in his eye and gentle skepticism when I decided to write a book that became my brigadista year. I'll give you a few facts to begin with. I was born in China, not Cuba. I have at some point in my life been fluent both in Chinese and Japanese and have studied Latin, Greek, and French. But I'm still wandering in the wilderness when it comes to Spanish. I have lived for extended periods in three different countries and seven different states but never in Cuba. So why have I written a story set in Cuba? And even more, why have I written a novel about a 13-year-old Cuban girl in the first person? After all, I am or will be in 
less than 10 days, an 85-year-old gringo living in Vermont. So I feel I owe my father some explanation, if not my prospective readers. Now, every book has its own story, and in this talk, I'll be going back to what I think is the beginning of the story of this book in order to tell you how, despite my father's wise words, I have written this book. For 40 years, and this is just a warning, whenever you ask me a question, and it might be just a yes or no question, I always lean back and say, well, once upon a time. So no story I tell is going to be short. So with this morning, I will go ahead. For at least 40 years, I've been part of an organization known as the International Board on Books for Young People, or as it is fondly called, IBI. IBI, as some of you may know, was started soon after World War II by a German Jew named Jella Lippmann. Jella Lippmann had worked with and written for women and children before she fled Hitler's Germany to spend the war years dodging Nazi bombs in London. Soon after the war, she was asked by the American High Command to return to the American sector of her native land to work for the rehabilitation of women and children who had been devastated by the war. Now, as a Jew, she wrestled with the idea of living in Germany again, but she finally agreed to take on the assignment. Ms. Lepman was a woman devoted to peace, and children, she believed, were the key to building a peaceful world. Children don't start wars, but children are always the victims of war. During the Nazi regime, German children were only allowed to read the propaganda materials put out by the government. Lebman believed that these young victims of war, a war they never started, were not only hungry and ill-clothed, but were starving spiritually and intellectually. So soon after she returned to Germany, she began to collect books from all over the world for these children. Before long, she had established a center where children could read and work and play together and learn through books about, and learn through books about the lives of children in other nations. This center eventually led to the uh, establishment of the International Youth Library in Munich. And then in her firm conviction that children's books could become an instrument of international understanding and therefore a bridge to peace, Yella Lepman led in the formation of IBI in 1953. Currently, IBI has 75, uh, has sections in 75 countries. Every two years at IBI, there is a World Congress where delegates eat and talk with persons from countries which their own nations officially despise. 
But we're all there because of our concern for children and because we believe books can be a bridge across political, racial, ethnic, and even religious divides. Every two years at the Congress, one of the, in one of the member countries, you meet these delegates from all over the world. My first IBI Congress was in Williamsburg in 1990. I haven't met, uh, I haven't uh, been to every Congress since, but I've been to most of them. And during that Congress, I met friends from all over the world, and those friendships I've been able to sustain for many years. Every two years, each member nation may nominate a writer and an illustrator to receive the Hans Christian Andersen Award for the body of their work. And at the World Congress in New Delhi in 1998, I was the recipient of the Writer's Award. The 1998 jury was made up of IBI members from South Africa, Finland, the United States, Bulgaria, Portugal, Slovenia, Chile, and Iran. To me, that jury was an overwhelming affirmation of the power of children's books to bridge divides the world would consider impossible to span. Now, I can't remember at which Congress I first met Emilia Gallego. I do remember marveling that Cuba was there, as well as Iran, two countries which my own country officially despised. At some Congress, and probably the one in Colombia, Emilia gave me a paper and said in highly accented English, you must come to Cuba. The paper was in Spanish, so I had no idea what I was being invited to. I think I just smiled and nodded and went on my way. Fortunately, my Guatemalan friend, Patsy Aldana, translated Amelia's invitation for me and became our interpreter. So I was finally able to recognize Amelia as more than the mysterious woman who handed me papers I couldn't read. As the Anderson Medal winner, I got a lot of international invitations that I was thrilled to accept. But how could I go to Cuba? I had the idea that even if you could sneak in to Cuba, there was no way you could come home safely. Uh, we had a Mennonite friend who seemed to go in and out of Cuba on a regular basis. And he told me we, we should really go. And I said, to Ken, you go all the time. Aren't you afraid you'll be arrested? I'm just hoping they'll arrest me, said Ken. I want to take the case to court and prove that it's unconstitutional. But Ken, I said, you do so much better in jail than I would. In early 2001, I was getting emails from Amelia urging me to come to her fall conference. By now, Ken had persuaded my husband John, that we should miss this opportunity. And John was raring to go, but he'd spent several days in an, in an Alabama jail after a civil rights march. He knew what spending time in jail was like. I didn't. And he could speak a bit of Spanish. 
I couldn't. I called Patsy Aldana, who married a Canadian and who's lived in Toronto for a long time, and I said, Amelia has invited us to her conference next fall, but I don't think we can get there from here. Well, I'm going to the conference, said Patsy. Why don't you and John just come up to Toronto and we'll fly to Havana together. Still uneasy about the legalities of such a scheme, I called an office named somewhat mysteriously the Cuban Interest Section. I talked to a young man on the phone about the proposed trip to this literacy and literature conference in Havana, and he seemed to feel that there was no problem. Uh, he assured me that United States citizens were permitted to go to Cuba for educational reasons. This was definitely an educational reason. I hung up, somewhat relieved, and John and I bought our tickets to Toronto and sent Patsy the money to buy his tickets to Havana. We arrived in Havana about three weeks after 9-11. The streets were totally empty of tourists. None of the European and Canadian tourists who loved to go to Havana were there because they didn't, nobody wanted to get on airplanes right then. But the Cubans welcomed us with open arms. Whether they were part of the conference or in the modest hotel where we stayed or on the street, Everyone was glad to see someone from out of the country there. And when they asked us where we were from, and we said the United States, they smiled very warmly. It was plain for us that most of the Cuban people we came to know uh, were not living an easy life. Indeed, whenever the government was spoken of, there was always this stroking of the beard to indicate whom was being spoken about. But there was music everywhere, and everybody seemed to break into singing and dancing, just like in the old Hollywood musicals. Of course, we saw the beautifully cared for American cars of the 1950s, but the car Emilia drove was not one of them. Just pray Amelia won't offer us a ride anywhere, Patsy said. But of course, Amelia did. Her car was an ancient Soviet-era Lada, more rust than metal. And we had to get out and give it a push to get it started. And Amelia never stopped at stop signs for fear that it would not keep going. We lived to tell the tale, but there were times when we truly wondered. But Amelia's Lada was far from the most daring feature of her life. At every meeting, government so-called representatives and members of the official press were lurking among the participants who had come from various Latin American countries. It was obvious, despite my linguistic handicap, that whenever Amelia addressed the group, I was in the presence of a powerful, outspoken person. I asked Patsy, why is Amelia in jail? Patsy shook her head. No one knows why Amelia is not in jail, she said. I think it's because she has too many international friends and might 
embarrassed the government to put her in jail. It was a wonderful week, ending with hugs and kisses on both cheeks, and then all too soon, we were back in Toronto and in the immigration line for our return to Vermont. The female agent who took our passports studied them suspiciously. I see you entered Canada, left the same day, and then re-entered a week later. Where did you go for that week, she asked, her finger on the blank page that Cuban immigration hadn't stamped, not wishing to get visitors from the United States into trouble. But I am, unfortunately, what the Japanese call baka honto, which means fool honest. So I said, Cuba. The eyebrows went up. It's all right, I said. We were attending an educational conference. I produced the official looking certificates in Spanish that Amelia had provided us with to prove that we had been in attendance. The eyebrows stayed aloft. I talked to Daryl at the Cuban intersection and he assured me that it was all right for us to go. She snatched up a phone. Is there anyone there named Daryl? She asked. No, no, I said, Dwayne, Dwayne. I had not helped my cause. She gave me a withering look and left the area to go into a back room to complete her conversation uninterrupted. We waited and waited and waited some more. Finally, she returned with our passports stamped them a bit huffily, and handed them back into my shaking hands. So, I said, putting on my bravest face, you're going to let us go home. Better than that, she said, I'm not going to charge you $40,000 each. Which, I saw in the local paper a few weeks later, was what they charged a 60-year-old Vermont woman who took an unauthorized bicycle tour in Cuba that fall. Fast forward to 2015. Amelia and I now have each other's email addresses, though both of us have to have a friend or relative translate most of the message. Anyhow, even I could tell in this particular email that Amelia was once more inviting me to come the last week of October to speak at her biennial conference. A lot had happened since we'd been there in 2001. Senator Leahy had become a hero to my friends in Cuba for his efforts to ease relationships between our two countries. Barack Obama had become president of the United States. Fidel Castro had died and so had my husband John. The Obama administration was beginning to ease restrictions on travel to Cuba and there would be no trouble with immigration this go around. We would take a flight from Miami rather than sneak out through Toronto. My son John speaks fluent Japanese, uh, fluent Spanish, and was eager to be my companion and guide on the trip. I wrote to Amelia and told her we'd be there. A wonderful thing happened several weeks before I was to go. I ran into my friend Mary Leahy at an event at the Vermont State House. Oh, Mary, I said, I'm going to Cuba soon, and I was hoping I could get your brother to write a letter for me to read to the devils. He's such a hero to my friends in Cuba. 
So how can I contact him in time to get something before I leave? It's very hard. You can't send a letter to a century anymore. <laughs> Everything has to be inspected. And emails are answered by somebody else. So I wanted to get a direct word to him. So she said, well, the, one of his aides is here. Uh, I'll introduce you. But as we were about to go over to meet the aide, she said to me, I'm so jealous. Pat gets to go to Cuba all the time, but I've never been there. When I began working with adult literacy in Vermont, I took ideas for our work from the great Cuban literacy campaign of 1961. What? I said. I've never heard of it. Well, she said, Jonathan Kozel wrote about it in a book called Citizen Children of the Revolution. It tells all about the campaign. Needless to say, I immediately got hold of Kozel's book and then began to research the 1961 literacy campaign. My favorite resource was a documentary filmed by Catherine Murphy, whose people had come from Cuba at the time of the revolution. And she thought maybe there was another story that her parents and grandparents had not told her. In, in Maestra, she tells the story of the campaign interspersed with interviews with nine Cuban women who, as teenagers, were literacy volunteers. They all looked back on the campaign as the year that changed their lives. Among them was a world-renowned architect, an urban planner, a translator, an artist, a college math professor, a teacher, an actress, a medical secretary, and a social psychologist who is a leading proponent in the struggle for the civil rights of Afro-Cubans and the LGBTQ community there. The story of the literacy campaign is a story very few people, in fact, I'll just show, show of hands. Have you ever heard of the Cuban literacy campaign? Oh, well, then I don't feel quite so dumb. <laughs> um, it begins actually on the 31st of December 1958 when Batista, the corrupt dictator of Cuba, resigned and fled the country, making way for Fidel Castro and his band of revolutionary fighters to take over the country. In the fall of 1960, Castro addressed the United Nations. And in that speech, he said, in one year, Cuba will become a literate country. Well, of course, everybody went, ho, ho, ho. But back in Cuba, he put out a call for volunteers. And he got something like 750,000 volunteers. He said, if you know how to read and write, you should teach someone else how to read and write. Over half of the volunteers were female. And about 108,000 of them were between the ages of 12 and 18. Back in the young volunteers were called Conrado Benitez Brigadistas. Conrado Benitez was an 18-year-old literacy worker who was killed by counter-revolutionaries on January 
1961, just when the formal literacy campaign was being launched. They were called Brigadistas because they formed a uniformed army, but one carrying pencils and notebooks instead of guns. Young Cuban girls who up until that time had lived, a sh had lived sheltered lives in the city left their comfortable homes and vigilant parents to go into the mountains and countryside where there was no electricity, no plumbing, where they carried water from the river to drink and scrubbed laundry on the rocks by the river and worked in the fields beside their hosts. And then at night, when the workday was over, sat with them under huge lanterns provided by the Chinese government and taught the campesinos how to read and write. Not only was life as a brigadista hard, but it was also dangerous. First, there was the bombing, and then the US-backed invasion at the Bay of Pigs. It was quickly defeated, but the invaders who escaped fled to the mountains where they opposed the Castro forces, even threatening the peaceful literacy brigades. There had been no warning of danger, and if not for the animals, we would never have known. Nancy was busy writing and rewriting her letter. She had pushed herself to finish her exams because next month her baby would be born. Writing the letter was proving much harder for her than the rest of the exam. She was something of a perfectionist and could not tolerate a single erasure. Look, she said disgustedly, you can still see the mistake underneath. I need to do it over. It has to be beautiful if it is to go to Havana. Raphael was racing Daniel and his mother, determined to beat them both through the primer, and Daniel was just as determined not to let a six-year-old triumph. I was beginning to have real hope that most, if not all, of my students would complete their three exams before December. I was working hard with Dunia, and Luis, as usual, was tutoring Joaquin. The elder Acostas had finally passed their second exams, but were struggling with the lessons leading to the third. Nothing but long words, Joaquin complained loudly. I can read the little ones, but now they're all as long as a water snake. I could hardly disagree. He had gone from words like house and hill to words like industry and revolutionary government. A bit of a distance for an old man who had first met the alphabet just a few months earlier. Luis broke the words into syllables and drilled the old man until he was nearly crying for mercy. But Luis was a stern teacher who wanted no pity. If you don't learn these words, you can't write your letter to Fidel, and poor Laura will go home feeling like a failure. Besides, he added, do you want your wife to finish first? Dunya's not letting the long words defeat her. Remember, our motto is, we shall prevail. Not, we tried, but the words were too long, so we whined and gave up. But even if I learned the words, you see, I have to make these little marks over some, but not all of the letters, and to put a squiggle above the enye, the old man complained. That's too much for my old brains to remember. 
I guess those evil Spaniards invented all that as well. Yes, said Luis. I'm sure they did. But now they make good Cuban words. Besides, I think the marks and squiggle, as you say, are pretty. Would you want your language to look as dull and undecorated as North American English? I was almost beginning to think it was a good thing that Luis had broken his leg. He was such a help, and I knew I needed a lot if I was going to get all of them through the last test before the end of the campaign. We were deep into our lessons. Veronica was determined to pass her final exam before her son did, and I was in the middle of the dictation section when Luis suddenly said, hush. I stopped reading aloud, and we all listened. The animals, he whispered. Something is out there. And then we all heard them. The chickens were cackling excitedly, the pigs were squealing, and even the oxen and goats were making anxious bleats. Luis grabbed a crutch and, as he struggled to his feet, whispered, Douse the lamp, somebody. Daniel jumped up to obey. Luis pushed back from the table, shoved aside the blanket, and stumped his way into the kitchen. The animal protests grew louder. Then we heard shouting and a bam, bam, bam on the front door. Open up. We know you have a brigadista in there. For a moment, we sat there frozen. Then Rafi yelled out at a muffled cry. Mama. Veronica put her arm around him. Shh. The banging and yelling continued. Suddenly, it was interrupted by Luisa's voice. I will not open my door to criminals, but be aware that I also have a rifle, and if you banditos try to enter this house, you will not see another morning. I never knew Luis to own a rifle, but he was banging on the back of the door with something that sounded like the point of a gun. There was some muffled talking outside, and again Luis's strong voice. If you try to break in, just remember, I'm in the dark and you're in the moonlight. You won't see who's killed you until you reach the gates of hell. There were a few more harf half-hearted bams on the door, and then, we'll be back. There were more threats thrown back at the house as, apparently, the insurgents drifted toward the woods. I thought I heard in the distance the sound of a piglet squealing. When only the chirp of insects broke the silence of the night, Louise came back into the bedroom. Daniel relit the lamp and revealed Louise standing in the doorway with a broom in his hand. He dropped it and gave an embarrassed titter. Hmm, I guess I can let go of my weapon now, he said sheepishly. For a long time, we sat silently around the table. Finally, Daniel stood up. It's safe to go, he announced, and we have animals to care for in the morning. We all went out to watch them go, peering anxiously toward the dark forest. When they disappeared into the shadows, we stepped back in and Louise bolted the door. On her mattress, Isabel turned over with a sigh. I looked down. The little girls had slept through all. Sleep if you can, Laura, Louise said. The animals will wake me if there's danger. It was a hot October night, but the small back room was stuffy. I lay shivering in my hammock, as cold as a fish on ice. From the woods, an owl screeched. I jumped. 
I won't be 14 until November 5th. I'm too young to die. I don't think I said the words aloud, but they were pounding as noisily in my head as if I had. <clears throat> I pulled my almost forgotten rosary out from under my nightdress and tried to smother my fear with a succession of whispered Our Fathers and Hail Marys. Dear Mother of God, don't let me die out here far from my own mother. Even, even if they don't kill me, won't I be putting my beloved new family in danger just by being here? It's too hard, the thought hit me like a bullet in the chest. I had promised to go home if it got too hard. After the campaign ended, the United Nations observers declared Cuba a fully literate nation. Today, Cuba's literacy rate is one of the highest in the world, being anywhere from 99.7 to 99.9%. The U.S. literacy rate was 84% in 2014 and hadn't changed in 10 years since the previous census. I now knew what I wanted to say in my speech at a media's literacy conference for her Latin American colleagues. I had in hand Senator Leahy's gracious letter to conclude my speech, but in the body of it, I would tell of my admiration and amazement for that young army of volunteers and the accomplishments of the campaign of 1961. It showed how the idealism of youth, when called into action, can accomplish great things. I emailed my talk to Isabel Serrano, who was to translate it into Spanish. In her return email, she said, you know, you knew, didn't you, that Amelia was a brigadista. I hadn't known, but I, when I did, it all made sense. She was one of that band of strong, accomplished women in today's Cuba, whose lives had been changed by their experience as teenage literacy workers in the 1961 campaign. On our return from Cuba, I was excited to tell friends about this trip and about the literacy campaign that had changed the lives of many. My friend Lita Schubert said, you should write that story. Should I really? I spoke with Karen Lotz, who is the publisher of Candlewick Books, and whom I have known since she was barely out of college. She might not think it was crazy for a white American elderly lady to write about the campaign of 1961. She encouraged me to write the story in novel form for young readers. So although I'm not Cuban, I decided to tell the story that few of us in the United States have heard, and no one that I knew of was writing about in a book for young readers. We all know the fact that Fidel Castro was a cruel and repressive dictator. We know that many Cubans have fled their homeland because of his actions, and many others have suffered and died for opposing his regime. But perhaps we have not heard that under his leadership, Cuba became a fully literate nation, a country where education 
is free from cradle to grave, from preschool through doctorate. And perhaps we don't know that every Cuban has access to excellent medical care. We don't like to hear good stories about our enemies, but perhaps we should. As Laura says in the epilogue to her story, my country is not perfect, but then it's yours. With fear and trembling, I sent a draft of the manuscript to Amelia and Isabel, and I was, to say the least, hearkened by their replies. I'd like to think my father would have been as well. This is only part of Amelia's letter to me, which I've had, had translated. My dearest Catherine, at last, and thanks to Isabel's translation, I've been able to calmly read your novel, giving it the attention it deserves. I've been excited by your perception of a reality, of an experience which was like that, just as you have described it, caring, complex, adventurous, and profound, which undoubtedly can only come from the best place which each person has. I think that if I hadn't read everything you have written, which was translated into Spanish, or if I hadn't had the privilege of hugging you and listening to you on more than one occasion, it would have been very difficult for me to understand how someone who wasn't there and who didn't go through that experience, the most beautiful one of my adolescence, has been able to capture the feeling that moved us and which was no other than the detachment and essentially the surrender a selfless act of love. In January of 1961, Fides, Fidel Castro launched the Year of Literacy. In that same month, a young American president spoke these memorable words, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Ironically, both men were set on a course that meant that we it was more than 50 years before our two nations exchanged ambassadors again. But in his own way, each inspired a generation of young people to unselfish action on behalf of others. We remember the Peace Corps. The Cubans remember the literacy campaign. Now, I can't tell a reader how to read my books. It's up to each reader to decide what meaning, if any, the novel holds for him or herself. But of course, I cannot deny a wistful hope that some young person today on reading Laura's story will be inspired by what these Cuban teenagers accomplished in 1961 and give themselves to selfless acts of love. And in doing so, may discover that they have received more than they gave. As one brigadista has said, I taught the campesinos how to read and write, and they taught me how to be a person. So thank you very much for coming. I really appreciate your coming in out of the sunshine. <laughs>